And uh, thank you also to the fellows that opened up with some songs uh, this, uh, this, morning, this evening. It was really nice. And you know, uh, the guy on the bass, was that, is that Andrew? Is that your name? You know, I saw you on Sunday and I thought, who is that guy? And it didn't hit me until you were behind that guitar today and I thought, that's Philip Phillips. <laughs> now, I don't know if you've ever been mistaken for Philip Phillips before, but man, you, you had me fooled. I thought, that was really cool. Anyways, um, good, good to see you along tonight. And I want to just remind you that tonight uh, there is a question box at the back of the chapel. And if you have a question regarding the subjects that we've been undertaking the last uh, two sessions, uh, would you please put a question in the box there? And we're going to try and address some of those questions on Friday, uh, our last uh, time together. So our subject that we've been under discussion these last couple of sessions is the subject of the New Testament patterned assembly. And the way we're trying to approach it is what do people, what are the questions that people ask when they walk into our buildings here? Now we're talking about, for the most part, people who are Christians who go to other evangelical churches and have never been associated or know anything about what we do here. And I want to just answer some of the questions that they ask when they first walk into our building. And, and we talked on Sunday morning of one of the first questions that people ask is, so what denomination is this? And we tried to approach that and handle that subject a little bit on Sunday morning. And then Sunday evening, we looked at the subject of who is your pastor? Now, we have a sort of a unique situation here in our assemblies. Uh, we don't have what you would call paid pastors in the sense, but we wanted to look at things from the scriptures just to sort of find out really what does the Bible really say on these sorts of things. Now, tonight in the will of the Lord, uh, we would like to speak about the priesthood of believers. And the question is this, am I a priest? Now, there is often a lot of confusion about some of these religious topics because many people have preconceived ideas about these different terms from what they have learned or seen on TV or what is most commonly understood in the world today. For instance, if I mention the, the word priest, I know before I was a Christian, the first thing I think of a priest is somebody who has his collar on backwards and, and he may go to the Roman Catholic Church or an Anglican Church or something like that. And they, these, these leaders are normally known as priests. But what does the Bible really say about priests? Now, uh, I'm going to read a passage. In fact, I'm not going to read it. I'm going to ask my little buddy, Timothy. Would you mind coming up, Timothy, and reading this passage for me? You would mind. Okay, but you're such a good reader. All right, what about the other young fellow there? Come on up, Nathaniel. We like to encourage everybody to participate in this. Now, you can maybe read it from my computer. Okay. Can you see it? Acts 2, 38-42. Then Peter said unto them, Repent, and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For the promise is to you 
and to your children, and all that are far off, even as many as the Lord your God shall call. And with many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, Save yourself from this untoward generation. Then they that get gladly received his word were baptized. And the same day there were added unto them about three thousand souls. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, and in breaking of bread and in prayers. Thank you. Thank you, Nathaniel. Good reading. He reads very well, doesn't he? So that is really our foundation verse that we've been looking at. This was, uh, um, this is, these verses are part of the very first sermon that was preached on the day of Pentecost over 2,000 years ago in the city of Jerusalem. And um, this was at the very birthday of the church, as we know it, and Peter is starting a foundation there. Now, I'm going to ask you a question. If you could think of one word to describe God in the Old Testament, what would be that one word? If you could think of one word that would describe God in the Old Testament. I wonder what would be the word that you would be thinking of. Who said that? Romeo. Romeo and Juliet, you would think of love. I understand that. But that's not... If I'm looking at the New Testament, Romeo, I'd agree with you. But the Old Testament, when I think of the Old Testament, and I might be wrong, but this is what I think of, is I think of the word holy. You see, it... Were you thinking of that, Malcolm? All right, good. Malcolm had it right as well. Good. Now, you see, when I think of the Old Testament, my mind goes right away back to the Garden of Eden, for example, right? And uh, there we are presented with an absolutely holy God. And you'll remember that the, the fall took place in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve, they sinned against God, and because of God's holiness... Adam and Eve were ushered out of that paradise, out of the Garden of Eden, and they were kept out of that place. And it says this, Therefore the Lord God sent him forth from the Garden of Eden, so he drove out the man. So man, right at the very beginning from our Bibles, because of the holiness of God, is not welcome in God's presence. Am I right in that? And that was something that, that you and I had to understand before we could become Christians. We had to understand that we were not fit in ourselves to be in God's presence. And one of the greatest things that really affected our thinking when we first were exposed to the gospel is the fact that this is a holy God. And I am unprepared and unfit to be in his presence. I remember that was one of the first things that struck me before I got saved. I was a young man, 16. I didn't know anything about the gospel. I wasn't raised in a Christian home. And uh, I, I, I still remember, you know, I, I, I don't know if I've mentioned this to you before, but I have an older brother. He's 10 years older than I was. And uh, I came from a divorced family. I was living with my father at the time because we had so many, I had so many problems uh, growing up. And... Um, my brother, who was 10 years older than I was, when I was 7, he was 17, he moved out to Vancouver, British Columbia. I was living in Saskatchewan at the time. Now, for American folk, let me put the geography this way, okay? Saskatchewan, 
you know where North Dakota is? Go north, that's Saskatchewan. Vancouver, you know where Seattle is? Go north, that's Vancouver, okay? That's the geography. Now, I'm living in Saskatchewan. And my brother had moved to Vancouver. He was a wild guy. I still remember he had hair down to here. And uh, we, used to, we used to tease him. We said he looks like Jesus. Now, we didn't know what Jesus looked like, but we just went by what we heard or what we saw. And so he went out into the world in Vancouver. And, and I remember uh, I was living with my dad at the time. And um, we got a cassette tape in the mail. And on this cassette tape, it said on the tape, it said to mom and dad family and family. And then on the reverse side, it said, God bless you. And I remember thinking, God bless you? What on earth? That's, that's not part of my brother's vocabulary unless he was cursing God. But here, God bless you. And, you know, we listened to the tape. And it told us how he had become a Christian. And I remember saying to my dad, I said, Dad, there's... Uh, just listen to this. It says he, he stopped drinking, he stopped smoking, he stopped chasing women. I said to Dad, there's something wrong with him. He's in a cult. This is a cult. This is serious nonsense he's in. And, and I said, Dad, would you let me go out and rescue him from this cult? Now, I was 16 years old. I just bought a car. And, uh, and he says, okay, you can go. Now, I have a younger sister who was living with my mom at the time. Uh, she was 14, and she wanted to come. So there's the two of us heading off from geographically Minot, North Dakota, all the way to Seattle. That's a long journey. And so here we are heading out to British Columbia. And, and, and to make a long story short, I, I came in contact with my brother who got saved first. And, man, it just impressed me. And, and, and within a very short period of time, I understood that that I was the one that needed to be, to be rescued. And he took me to a meeting one night. It was a meeting like this. The man was preaching on the seven churches of Asia. His name was Sidney Maxwell. I knew nothing about the seven churches of Asia in the book of Revelation. Uh, in fact, I'm, I'm so, I was so ignorant of the Bible, to give you an idea of how silly and ignorant I was of the scriptures, I remember the very first Bible my brother gave me. And I remember reading it, and it said, the epistle of Paul the Apostle. And I'm thinking, what on earth is that? And I figured out what an apostle was. And I thought, what on earth is an epistle? And the best thing I could come up with is an epistle must be a female apostle. And so that was how, how ignorant I was of the Bible. So here I was, brought to this meeting. This man was preaching. But I'll tell you what hit me. Is as I was in that meeting, I sat in the front row, and I was to tape this meeting for my brother because he had to work the afternoon shift. And they had Bible verses on the wall, sort of like what you guys have here. And the conduct of the believers in that meeting and the atmosphere of that place, it just reminded me that I'm in God's presence. And this is a holy place. And I don't fit here. I'm unfit to be in this place. You see, that's the very first thing that somebody who's not a Christian begins to understand is, you know what? I'm not ready to meet God. Because if he's holy, I'm not holy. And there's issues that need to be dealt with. So here we have this holiness of God that, that turned Adam and Eve out of the garden because of their sin. 
And the uh, Psalm 5 verse 4 says this, For thou art not a God that has pleasure in wickedness, neither shall evil dwell with thee. And so we find out that God is absolutely holy. Now, as this truth starts to dawn on us, we begin to understand that there is a need for a priest. There is a need for somebody who can present my need and my problems to God. And I want to just ask you tonight, what is a priest? How would you define a priest? Now, I'm going to tell you what a priest is, and we're going to look at it in the Bible. This is my definition of what a priest is. A priest is someone who stands in the presence of God on behalf of men. Okay, now get this. I want you to get this in your head here. A priest is someone who stands in the presence of God on behalf of men. Now that's the definition of a priest. Now, let me give you a contrasting definition here. If I was to ask you, what about a prophet? What's the definition of a prophet? Now, a prophet is very similar, but opposite. A prophet is someone who stands in the presence of men on behalf of God. You see? So a prophet is someone who stands in the presence of men presenting God's terms to man. That's what a prophet is. But a priest is someone who stands in the presence of God on behalf of men. So there's a little definition for us to understand. Now, um, fellowship was partly restored. When you start to go through the Bible, you begin to see that though man had been sinful and was put out of the presence of God, God had made a plan to restore man, to bring him back into God's presence. And how did he do that? Well, he, for example, we have the the tabernacle in the Old Testament. And I'm going to read you a verse here from Exodus chapter 25. And there I will meet with thee, and I will commune with thee from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubims, which are upon the ark of the testimony. Now, we're not going to go to the tabernacle tonight and go into those lovely pictures that are in the tabernacle. But sufficient, uh, uh, suffice it to say is this. In the Old Testament, God had a structure called the tabernacle in which he dwelt. There was a tent, and he dwelt in the presence of that, in the, inside that tent. All the children of Israel were encamped around that camp, and that's where God met with his people from above a thing called the ark, and there was a mercy seat there. And the priest would go in once a year, with the blood of a lamb and sprinkled on the mercy seat and he could meet with God once a year and he represented the people as he brought them into God's presence. Now we have here a little picture, a depiction of what the high priest looked like in the Old Testament, at least his attire. He's standing there at the, at the um, uh, altar of incense. And here also you have what is known the breastplate of judgment. Now, the high priest in the Old Testament, he had a breastplate, and there were 12 uh, precious stones, or semi-precious stones, that were part of the breastplate. And each one of these stones represented one of the 12 tribes of Israel. And as the priest entered into God's presence, 
he bore on his heart the, 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 that which represented the 12 tribes of Israel. So he carried with him the, the needs of God's people as he entered into God's presence. Now, have you ever wondered and thought about what is actually the work of a priest? What does a priest do? We know, we, we, you know, the first thing that we think of is a priest. He goes into God's presence and he offers the sacrifices. But the work of a priest in the Old Testament was far more than that. I mean, that was a very big part of it. That was a very important part of it. But I wonder if you and I appreciate the variety of work that the priest was involved in as he functioned in the service of God. Now, just, talk, just look about some of these things. Okay. The priest was responsible for the preparation of the olive oil that had to be used to ignite these lamps that were in the, in the tabernacle. So there was the, the production of the olives. There was the pressing of the olives. That was his responsibility. They had to do that. Um, they were responsible to keep the lamps burning. They had to maintain the wicks, etc. They had to keep those things going. Uh, that was part of their job. They had also uh, an evening and a morning sacrifice. There was a lamb that was slain every morning and every evening. So there was the preparation of these lambs and the slaughtering of them and the preparing of them and putting them on the altar. And... Um, there was the, the fire had to be kept going upon the altar. Remember, the brazen altar was, the, the fire was never to go out. It was to go on forever. It was continually burning. Now, that required work, didn't it? It required, it required wood. The, uh, the priest was responsible for preparing the wood and bringing it in. Now, why am I talking about some of these mundane things? Because I want to I bring it home to us today. Functioning as a priest today often includes mundane jobs, mundane tasks. Let me just ask you, um, who, who is it that vacuums the floors in here? Maybe you hire a service, that's a different story. But you have, okay, thanks, Malcolm. He says no. Who is it that, who, I'm not asking actually for the answer, but this is a hypothetical. Who's doing the work? Who comes here, say, Sunday morning before everyone else and opens the place up and, and, uh, and, and, and gets their emblems ready? Who unlocks the doors? Who maintains the building? Who does a lot of these mundane things? And we think of them as being insignificant, unimportant. I want you just to remember that priest in the Old Testament out there chopping a, a, a piece of wood, having to sharpen his axe, and just doing the, the dumb, mundane things of priesthood. You know what? He was doing it for the great Jehovah. And that put a whole new perspective on... He wasn't just a, a logger out there chopping wood down. This was wood that was going to be used in God's presence... To, to be used in God's work. And that put a whole new spin on the type of work and his attitude towards what might be considered just a mundane job. Now I want you to think about it. When you function in the assembly here, maybe it's just teaching a Sunday school class, maybe it's just uh, preparing this, this text on the front, on the back here or whatever. Whatever the job is, 
I want us to look at all of the work that we do in regard to the assembly as far more important than just the mundane job. Okay? These are, there's a spiritual aspect to all of these things. So let's move on. He had to prepare the incense for the altar of incense. There was work involved in that. He had to decide in cases of leprosy. You know, there, there was a certain test that had to be done when there was a, a, a thought of leprosy around, and that had to be looked at. Um, he had to do the, the incense. He actually had to offer the incense. And uh, there was the work of purifying the unclean. If somebody was, uh, had, um, came in contact with a dead body and ceremonially had become unclean, he was responsible for performing the, the, the different ceremonies in order to declare this person clean again. Um, there was the, the teaching of the children of Israel. There was the, the blowing of the silver trumpets to call the assembly together. And they had to act as judges in disputes of God's earthly people. He had to deal with them. And, and these are all the variety of work that the priest in the Old Testament had to do. Now, I would like for us this evening just to consider, let's say we would all like to be a priest, okay? But we're not living in the New Testament time. We're now living in the Old Testament time, okay? Now, you and I might like to be a priest. Now, what are the qualifications for a priest in the Old Testament? Do you think you and I qualify? Well, let's just look at it here. Well, the first thing that this priest had to be is a descendant of Abraham. Now, that probably wipes out 99% of us that are here, if not 100%. I don't know if there's anybody here that is of Jewish, uh, Jewish um, background. But anyways, let's go on. He had to be of the tribe of Levi. He had to be not only just from the tribe of Levi, but he had to be from a specific family, the family of Aaron. And, and, and then also, uh, males only. Sorry, ladies. I mean, let's say all of us did qualify, okay? Uh, but if you are a woman, uh, it's just not going to work for us. You know, you can't be a priest. You can't go into God's presence. Um, also, um, hey, I'm out, um, just barely. Um, ages between 25 to 50, all right? If you're outside of that, forget it. You can't do it. You can't be a priest. So just look at already, uh, most of us have been pretty much wiped out by the qualifications. But let's just say we did qualify. Now just look at some of the other, let's, let's look at the disqualifications, okay? Uh, found in Leviticus chapter 21. I think it's also Numbers chapter 9. But the disqualifications are this. If you met all of the qualifications, but you were blind, sorry, you're out. Um, lameness, that's me, I'm out of it. Um, baldness, Andrew, you're out. Another guy, you guys, you just don't make it. Sorry, guys. Follically challenged. Uh, facial deformities, well, I won't go into that. Uh, a deformed limb, okay. Um, foot or hand injuries. Uh, hunchback, I'm not making this up, guys. This is in the Bible, okay. Uh, hunchback, this is, these are all disqualifications for functioning as a priest in God's presence. Um, dwarfism uh, was another one. Defective eyes. Most of us have glasses, right? Um, itching diseases and scabs and, and, and a flat nose. I mean, that's in the Bible. It says that. 
if you have a flat nose, you can't function as a priest. Now, we sort of, you know what I'm trying to do here is I'm trying to make it, you realize that we don't qualify. We don't qualify to enter into God's presence. And even if we did meet most of these criteria, just look at the, 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 these, the restrictions upon the individual have to be absolutely perfect in, in, in many ways in order in, to enter into God's presence and function as a priest. Now, here is a, a picture of the, of the tabernacle of old. And, uh, of course, you have here, this is the, the, the tabernacle, and this is the courtyard. And uh, the children of Israel camped all on the outside of this area. And, um, and, 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 and inside, I'm just going to get a little closer view here of what it looks like to be inside the tabernacle. Now, the tabernacle itself was divided into two rooms. You had here, first of all, the holy room, okay, the holy place. And in the holy place, there was the table of showbread. There was the... Um, the altar of incense, and then there was the, the lampstand, all right? And um, now that is where the priest would have to go in to function on a, on a regular basis. But there was another room back here called the holiest of all. And in that place was the, what we know as the, as, the, uh, as the mercy seat and the ark of the testimony and the mercy seat. And inside that ark was the... Um, was uh, the tables of stone that were broken and um, uh, the hidden pot of manna and there was also Aaron's rod that budded. They were all in there. Those all speak of Christ, which is another, another meeting. But my point is this. Inside that room, was the, that's where God's presence was and it was separated from the rest of the tabernacle here by this veil. There was a large, heavy veil, a big curtain that separated God's presence from everybody else. And nobody could go into that special holy, holy place except for the priest, the high priest. Once a year, on the Day of Atonement, he would go in there and he would sprinkle blood upon the mercy seat. And that was a time of communion with the high priest and with God in that special place. Once a year, one man, that was it. Now, Something miraculous happened when the Lord Jesus died on the cross. Um, you'll remember that this, this event took place. Let me read it to you. This was on the cross. The Lord Jesus was on the cross. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice, and he breathed his last. Then the veil of the temple was torn in two from the top to the bottom. You know that curtain that separated God from man? That curtain that kept man from out, out from going into God's presence? That curtain, somehow, the very moment that Jesus Christ gave up his spirit and died on the cross, that curtain was torn from the top to the bottom. It was ripped into, torn from top to the bottom. It was very interesting that the fact that it was started from the top to the bottom. It, it, it would be, if a man did it, you would think it being ripped from the bottom to the top. But it started from the top to the bottom. And that signifies and gives us a little clue that the, the, the origin of this tear 
came from heaven itself. Why? We have the answer to that here. Hebrews chapter nine, or chapter 10, verse 19, it says this. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter into the holiest, that's this holy place, by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he had, which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh. You see, when Jesus Christ died on the cross, it was like God was satisfied once and for all that the work that Jesus did on the cross was there to completely wash away the sins of the world. Up until that time, all the lambs that had been slaughtered in the Old Testament, they could never take away sin. But they spoke, they were a picture of the Lamb of God that would come in the future. And now, for the very first time in history, since the Garden of Eden, God was able to rip that, that curtain open. And now, for the very first time, because of the, the sacrificial work of Jesus Christ on the cross, he has opened the way for sinners, for you and for me, who are unfit and disqualified from his presence. We are now welcome to come into his presence because of what his son did on the cross. Now, I am so excited about that. God had made me right to be in his presence. All the church attendance I could do, all the good works that I could do, could never ever make me right in God's presence. And the only way that I can be right in God's presence is by receiving Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior and trusting in his finished work. And that will make me right for heaven. That will make me a child of God. And you know, I would, I would like to just make this one more. I want to emphasize this today. Because if somebody is not a Christian here today, if you're not born again, if you're not ready for heaven, this is really the most important thing that you'll understand tonight, is that Jesus Christ, you and your sin, as you are, we are not fit to come into God's presence. But when Jesus Christ bled and died at the cross, God has no reason now to judge you for your sin because he judged his own son on the cross. Jesus died for your sins. God held him accountable for your sins. And now God can come out to you and to me with an offer of forgiveness. If you take my son, if you submit to his work on the cross, I will cleanse your conscience. I will wash away all the sins of your life and I will make you a child of God and you'll be one of my own. Oh, I'm so glad. August 18th, 1975, 8.30 in that little gospel hall in Vancouver, sitting there, trembling in the presence of God, thinking I'm lost. And I said these words. This was my prayer, my opening story this, this evening. My prayer was this, Lord, now I know I'm a guilty sinner and I'm just going to have to go to hell because that's what I deserve. And then all of a sudden I understood, hey, I don't need to go to hell. Jesus Christ went to hell for me. He experienced hell on my behalf. I don't need to. And it hit me. I'm saved. I got it. My sister was sitting beside me in the meeting. I pumped her. I says, I got it. I really got it. Went down all the way down the pew. The preacher lost his audience. A young man, 16, got saved in that meeting. Wouldn't it be wonderful tonight if somebody did that? Trusted in Christ. 
That is the wonderful, wonderful revelation. The most important thing. And now, Romeo, now you can think of the word love. Up until then, God was holy. And you stay out. But now Jesus Christ died on the cross. Why? Because God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. (laughs) Have you got that? That's the most important thing. Now, let's move on. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female for ye are all one in Christ Jesus. You see, this was the work of Christ. We were all wiped out before. We couldn't function as priests. We were not welcome. But today, all believers, genuine believers in Christ, are priests before God. It doesn't depend now on our nationality, or our gender, or our education, or our wealth, or our age, or our language, or our health. You know what? When we become a Christian, God has made us fit to come into his presence. Not just once a year. More than twice a year. You can come twice a second, Romeo. You can come any time you like. Because Jesus Christ has made you fit to enter into God's presence. And, and that is a tremendous liberty for the Christian. So, First Peter teaches this. You also, as living stones are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, you see, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Verse 9 of chapter 2. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So you see, every born-again person that knows Christ as Savior has now become a holy priest and a royal priest. And what do we as priests today, how do we function? What do we sacrifice? What offerings do we bring to God? What does the Bible teach? Do we still use goats and animals? Do we go to the parking lot on Friday evening and sacrifice a lamb and and that sort of thing? No. But what do we do as priests today? Well, let's find out. The very first thing that a young Christian discovers as a priest is that God wants us to sacrifice our body. Now, does that mean we give up ourselves and kill ourselves? Is that what he wants? No. Um, Romans chapter 12, verse 1, it says this. I beseech you, therefore, brethren by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, not a dead sacrifice now, a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. It's the most normal thing for you and I as Christians to do, is the very first thing we do as a person, as a believer in Christ, and say, Lord, this is your body. I want you to take it and use it for your glory. I remember the very, when I told you I got saved when I was 16, it was a couple of months later, I came into this little chapel, I was in the assembly there in, this, in Regina, and there was a person that came there, and it was, what the, it was a person they call a missionary, never heard of it before. 
and they gave a report on the work that they were doing in India. And a young Christian, two months old, I, I lifted up my, God, my heart to God after that meeting. I said, Lord, I'm not much, but if you can do anything with me, I'm offering my body to you. You can use it, do whatever you like with it. It's yours. And sometimes the Lord uses, takes you up on your word. And sometimes he challenges you. And I'm in a wheelchair today because of me offering my body to Christ. But you know what? It's a wonderful sacrifice. I'm happy to do it. You know, I want to challenge young people here today. You have a whole life ahead of you. And you have your body. You have your health. And the world would love to get a hold of it and destroy it. But God wants you to offer it to him. And say, Lord, this is your body. And I want to keep it pure for you. And I want to use it to bring honor and glory to your name. So the very first thing that we do is the presentation of the body as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. This is an act of spiritual worship. Let's not forget that. The sacrifice of praise. Now this is a wonderful thing when you think about it. Therefore, by him, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. You know, that's a wonderful thing. God loves to hear praise. And we often grumble. We grumble too much. We need to be taken up with the blessings of the Lord and, and, uh, and to have a, a heart filled with praise and adoration. You know, uh, some of you as young parents, you think of all what you do for your children. You provide food for them. You give bed for them. You do this and every you, uh, The list is endless. And doesn't it break your heart sometimes that they still have to complain about something? <laughs> oh, thanks, Romeo. He's with me. You know, I think really... Um, we as God's people really need to take a second look at the blessings we have. And we need to lift up our hearts and recognize, you know, just the other day, well, this was back in, in, this was down in Cape Town, all right? I'm going to tell you a personal story. We, we, at the time we were renting an apartment right on the beach and I have a kayak and I like to go out in the ocean in my kayak because it's good therapy for me. It throws me all over the place. And um, the apartment complex that we are on the beach, there's a bunch of restaurants and things like that all along the, the main floor. Then the apartment, uh, apartments are above that. There was a Saturday, lovely Saturday morning, and the, the, the waves were calling me, and I wanted to go out in the kayak. So... I have my boat is down at the dock house where the lifeguards are. And so I'm getting, I got into my wetsuit because the water's cold. I got into my wetsuit. I'm in my wheelchair and I have to wheel past all these patrons on the restaurants that are open air restaurants looking out onto this beautiful ocean. And I'm wheeling by and I turn a few heads anyways because, well, I'm good looking. But um, <laughs> apart from that, um, I turn a few heads anyways because I'm, I'm, I'm in a wetsuit in a wheelchair. And I'm going by, you know, and, um, and 
And all these people are looking at me, and I'm thinking, oh, man, go back to your meals. Leave me alone. And uh, I'm starting to feel sorry for myself. I think, Lord, I would just love to be able to walk down there and surf. And, and I'm in this wheelchair, and I'm going on. And I lift up my eyes, and there's a man in a wheelchair coming out of the parking lot. And this man was completely paralyzed. He controlled his wheelchair through a straw in his mouth, moved his head forward, back, this way, that way. That's all he could do. And he was in that situation by himself. And I was smitten by God. What have I got to complain about? What have I got to complain about? And I thank God for what I have. You know, you and I, we need to recognize the blessings that we have and to be thankful for what we have and to praise him for them. Um, The sacrifice of good works. Hebrews says this, but do not forget to do good. Doing good, folks, just Simple simple little things, trying to help people. That's a sacrifice to God. God sees that. And he appreciates that. Do not forget to do good and to share. That has to do with our finances and our time and our pocketbook and our possessions. For with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. Hmm? You know, when we gather together on Sunday mornings and the offering comes... You know, uh, 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 it's a sacrifice, isn't it? It's an offering to God. And, you know, I think we need to just go back to this perspective that this offering is for Him. Sometimes I've given to different believers, and I wondered, I thought, well, I wonder what they're going to use it for. Hey, it doesn't matter. I haven't given it to them. I gave it to God. You understand? You see, we lose when we think we're giving it to people. We're giving it to God. And what those people do with what God has blessed them with, that's their responsibility. And you and I all have been recipients of his blessings, and we're accountable to him for them. So, the priesthood of believers. I'm going to close with this question. Am I a priest? The New Testament teaches that every believer in Christ is a priest. Consequently, we have a tremendous privilege to approach near and serve our awesome, holy God. May the Lord bless his word to us. Now, Friday evening, in the will of the Lord, we're going to handle this very interesting and thorny subject of gender distinction in the New Testament. I'm hoping to get out of that alive. Uh, because I'm taking my wife on a cruise for Valentine's Day, so on the 14th. So this is on the 13th of Friday, and we just trust that God will bless our time together. Gender distinction in the New Testament and the head covering, and we're also going to try and handle some questions at that time. So again, a reminder, there is a question box at the back. Any questions that have to do with these sorts of subjects, put them in there, and we may not be able to address all of them. We'll try. And we will see how the evening goes on Friday. May God bless you. Let's just bow our heads.